Welcome to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. This podcast is where we explore the landscape of the immensity of landmines that exist for people who've lost their sense of identity, who've been shaken to the core, and are relearning who they are now that a part of them is lost. It's stories of how people manage this struggle, regain their footing, and the gifts they've discovered along the way. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, Mark. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Pretty good. It's been a whirlwind of a week so far, and we're only at Monday, so <laughs> I guess uh, I, it feels like it's like Wednesday, so. Oh, my goodness. And where in the world are you? So right now, I'm in Mansfield, Ohio. Okay. I'm currently on the road as part of my kind of long-term project right now, yeah. and I'm sitting a Panera Bread that I used to work at um, when I was in college. So it's very nostalgic. Oh, memory plus. Yeah, I can see a bench right now that I actually slept on during two weeks. I was homeless while working here and I slept there every night after work. Oh my goodness. The human experience is one major spectrum okay so let's see uh i i usually like read our our talking about why i'm doing the interview with the person before i get on but somehow all of a sudden today like evaporated i guess maybe it's in the air time is on a time warp today or something so your identity losses you had a uh, you had addiction in your growing up, right? Yeah. So I guess I've been thinking a lot about how we could make the most of this podcast from what you had said. Yeah. Cause you have it's so like, many different things and we want this, we want the story of what happened, but more important is how you experienced it when it was happening. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, I really think they're the, the most impactful one would probably be my identity loss during childhood. Um, when I lost my mom and then the constant tension that I experienced coming from a family that was addiction after addiction after addiction. And then there was me and the process of breaking that and forging a different identity, but at the same time, feeling almost trapped within a lot of certain boundaries about, you know, where I should go. And so I think that would probably be, there's other really, I think my religious identity later on in life is one that would be powerful for people. But I think that at least if we tried to get the best out of the, the childhood one, that I think could help a lot of people. Um, So let's start at the beginning. So the way that I see addiction and also um, child abuse and especially sexual assault is like, like, and later domestic violence, it kind of, well, no, these early ones, it nips, it nips your identity in the bud because you have to make these major adaptations to survive in these kind of situations. So that's sort of my angle of, of your topic. 
Does that, does that, so you're like, not, it's not, doesn't sound like it's ringing true. So actually, like said, actually, well, it's interesting because I, you know, my PhD studies surrounded identity and I think of Eric Erickson's model of identity when I think of it. And I think of like, you kind of diffuse into an identity then in, in every major area of your life. And then you can kind of go into this place. He called it moratorium where you're like, not sure what your identity is. And you can either go back into another foreclosed identity that you just kind of commit to without really thinking about it, or you build a, a new identity that kind of accommodates all the things you've been through and creates something that is uh, a stronger, more stable, and also more meaningful identity. And what you just taught me through what you said is that when I was young, I ended up having, I ended up being rusted into identity moratorium super fast before I could diffuse into any identity, especially around the identity of uh, actually of what it meant to be a child. And yes, then I your childhood yeah. was your childhood was nipped in the bud. It was sort of robbed. Well, this is I think. OK, so hello, audience. I didn't realize we were recording this pre podcast interview, but I think that this is valuable. So let's um, just jump in and pretend like we already started. So I have Mark Matthews on the line today. He has lots of different identity losses. And now you know what we're going to talk about. <laughs> so let's just jump into it. This is and, and so you have a um, you're still in school or you you already got your PhD. Yeah, so I am at the tail end of a PhD. For people familiar, I'm all but dissertation. So I've done all my coursework. I've uh, finished all my candidacy exams and general stuff. And now I just have to write a dissertation. Um, but I'm taking a year to self-fund a trip around all 50 United States of America to capture people's life stories and really ask a question of how do you build an empowering identity in modern America. And that'll be part of my dissertation. And then I'll, I'll finish all that up when I get back. Oh my goodness. So yes, we have an over the top expert on identity today, way, way over my head. Cause I, you know, I got a master's in social welfare but it wasn't, you know I've actually never even taken beginning psychology cause there was too many kids in the class when I was an undergraduate. It's like you had to and I was like, well, I guess I won't take psychology. Anyway, let's not go there. So let's jump in and, and start your story the way you'd like, Mark. And we'll just, I'll interrupt you. And let's, that's the way I do my interviews. So <laughs> I love it. Let's do it. I've listened to some of the interviews. I've really enjoyed them. And I'm here for first and foremost to share in the mission of just giving the experience of what identity has been for me and the, what losses have felt like in the hopes that really someone who out there is listening, who's going through something like this might find hope or a resource or figure out how to actually contend with that in a way that promotes growth rather than destruction because both can happen. Right. You can either spiral down or you can spiral up when you're in crisis. 
when when the rugs pulled out from under you and you're forced into this identity transition. And so in your case, you were born into a family with addiction, right? Is that is that how we're going to start? I think that's the right way to think about it. I was born into a context of generational trauma, I think would be the right word. Okay. And, yeah, there's and a reason for addiction, which is usually trauma. Yeah. Um, and, and that was really the way that my family learned to cope was through addiction. Mm -hmm. um, and that addiction, I think of addiction as a way of coping with a problem that leads to maladaptive outcomes that you cannot let go of. Um, that, yeah, because you're addicted. Yeah. And, and your, that your addiction implies being stuck. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I think of that even with beliefs. So I think you can get oh, addicted yeah. to beliefs. Oh, totally. Oh, my God. Yes. This is dog, dogmatism or is that a word? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I guess just, yeah, to dive in. So when I was born, I came really late in life. My mom was, I believe, 40 years old when she became pregnant with me. And she didn't think she could have children. She, from what I understand, already believed she had screwed up her other children, really her life. Because at that time, my mom and dad were living in Texas. They had left Ohio where they were born and grew up because they were trying to escape really um, what I think was an oppressive religious kind of identity that was being forced upon. And I don't know how much that's true, but I know they were trying to get away and build a life for themselves. Unfortunately, on their, that on was, their own terms. Yes, on their own terms. Um, and it was built out of a beautiful love. They loved each other more than anything. And they just wanted to be free and to experience life. And they went down to Texas and they were going to build this life for themselves and promptly had children. And um, it's not easy to live a life of complete freedom and kind of a party lifestyle that comes around that with children. No. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't work. So from what I know from that story, and really my brother is a better person to ask, but they were very impoverished. They were really struggling. He's told me stories of stealing for food as a young kid um, from grocery stores. And growing up with that, he saw their whole life revolved really around substance use because that's where they felt free from everything going on. And then they also had another son who had severe cerebral palsy. And he took a lot of care. He you know, there's no telling exactly what caused it, but he couldn't walk. He couldn't um, really talk. And that's my two brothers. My oldest brother was kind of born into that context and, and he was struggling. My middle brother was, you know, contending with that. And my parents were trying to figure out, well, how do we make something of this life that's really gotten ahead of us? Um, and then I pop up. Okay, hold on. <laughs> So as a former medical social worker who worked with kids and families with kids with cerebral palsy, it's generally not uh, considered anything to do with drug or alcohol use. It's like oxygen deprivation before, during, or shortly after birth. 
And there could be like all kinds of reasons for that. And then of course, cerebral palsy is on the spectrum of like 100% dependent in a wheelchair, can't even talk or eat, things like that, to, you know, the other, and even like mental, mentally not being cognitively up there to the other end of the spectrum where they, they can walk and they have full capacity of their mental and physical, but maybe, you know, stiffness and need braces on their legs. And, or even you can have the, the, the kid who's in a wheelchair for life and unable to speak, but a hundred percent cognitive. So they know everything that's going on, but they can't communicate very well. So it's a, it's a really incredible condition for a parent to have their life centered around. Um, so more power to your parents for, you know, however well they did with that, because that's, that's a whole identity loss in itself for the parents because they're expecting a healthy baby that will grow up and become independent and go off and, and have the life that, that they create for themselves. And instead, in a lot of cases, they have a child that's never going to grow up and they're terrified of what's going to happen when they die because nobody's going to take care of their kid the way that they do. It's, it's oh my God. So you came into a family. Now, actually, I'm not going to go into this story, but I did grow up in a family, not with cerebral palsy, but I'm number three out of four kids. And my oldest brother, for his first 10 years of life, my parents had four funerals planned for him. He was so sick and basically ready to die. And he didn't, he's still alive. But those kind of that, that kind of severe medical challenge, medically challenged child makes for family dynamics that are like not, not traditional families, let's put it that way. Wow. Wow. That's, <laughs> I, I empathize deeply with just that idea because in my life, I've been through a lot of funerals as a young kid and I can't I've always sat there with the question what would it be like to be the parent planning the funeral for the child that's something that I have not experienced and it was so hard as the child but I've always wondered like wow I don't know how uh I don't know how you contend with that and I think that's what my parents expected with my brother because um they always said he had he had the worst range of cerebral palsy. I mean, okay. he's a hundred percent wheelchair. Cognitive abilities are almost not there at all. And he was mm. told, or at least I was always told, they expected him to live to about 10 or 15 years old with this condition. Mm. He's almost 40. Um, mm. And my oldest brother actually takes care of him now. It's really, it's amazing. It's a beautiful oh, wow. kind oh, of wow. ending to, to a lot. But my mom, she was just her whole life was like, take care of him, yeah. but also manage addiction. And then all of a sudden I come up and it's like, oh my God, what do you mean? I'm going to have another kid at 40. Cause at the time that was super scary. Um, nowadays that's right. not, as, you know, how, how old are you, Mark? 
I'm 28. Oh, that you're still very young. Oh. Okay. But yeah, 28 years ago, once you hit about 34, then there was a lot of concern about having a kid. Yeah, and I think my mom was 40. Um, and she also, she was worried something would happen to me. By that time, my older brother had been in and out of juvenile detention centers. Oh, you know, man. he just wanted to find a way to escape the world like my parents did. And he found drugs. He was an addict by like the age of, I think he started smoking at like 11 and was smoking just, cigarettes. Yeah. And then full on engaged in drug use throughout his teen years until ultimately when I was three, he went to prison uh, for five years. And so that was kind of my like earliest memories was, you know, I'm sitting here. My mom is my protector. She 100% like when she found out she was pregnant with me, she got back to Ohio to find family who could help provide structure. She immediately immersed herself in the one thing she knew could, that could help her, which was church. And so we went to church, like I went to one church early morning. We went to another church later morning. Like we did all the church activities. because and, and she was in recovery at that point. She wasn't doing drugs or alcohol. Yeah, she. Yeah, so she that was, was that was her her recovery program. It was, and it Good worked for her. for her. Yeah, it worked for her, and she. I always look at it as I'm the product of redemption, because she <laughs> really, she went all in. She did yeah. everything she could to protect me and my brother, and she even won like caregiving awards for how oh. well she took care of my brother, and. And where she, was your dad? So my dad, he was he was a functional alcoholic. He'd work like crazy. But he went with her to Ohio. You stayed together, yeah. intact family. Okay. Because a yeah. lot of these families with severely disabled kids, they don't stay married. Oh, it's, it's, it's actually kind of unusual. There's something amazing about the Matthews men. It's a joke, but like, we are so loyal to everyone in our lives. That's like to, to a crippling degree. Yeah. We have massive empathy, all of us. And we can't help if we see somebody like we care about them quickly and we immediately want to be there for them. And that's why a lot of my family, they, they say they were, you know, addicts is because it helped cope with the constant emotional turmoil that all of us would feel. And so I think that was a lot of it. My dad would never leave my mom. He loved her more than anything in the world. Oh, nice. Um, it was beautiful. Um, but yeah, he thing is, though, is he kind of had that identity of I work really hard so I can drink when I'm at home. And so I didn't spend a lot of time with my dad. And I just saw him as this guy who works and drinks a lot. And that was about it. But kind of going forward, that was my childhood. Mom took care of me. I, I was I was a pretty great kid. I was a handful, but, you know, little boys usually are. And I. I was pretty wild, but she just protected me until very early into my. What does that protected you from? What? What does that mean? I think uh, everything, and even in a bad way. Like if there was like a curse word or something that someone say, she like cover my ears, or if there was, you know, a kid who might be dangerous, she would like avert that. She was so focused on making sure that I didn't get into trouble 
that I had a healthy upbringing. And so she like volunteered at my school. She would come in and work with me constantly to make sure that I was going to have a good path and a good life in school because my brother had created a reputation that, you know, we're not the greatest kids. <laughs> so, so, so your mom got a second chance with you. She got it. She really And, and she became the mother that she wasn't able to be with your older brother. I really think so. I really do. And that's where I see it as like a product of redemption. She came in, she redeemed herself. She poured love into me. And as a, someone who studied psychology, I know enough about developmental psychology to know that those first four to six years are so important. And she nailed it. I mean, she really did. She was amazing. And then she got sick when I was about six years old with uh, COPD. It's a chronic lung disorder for people who don't know. Um, and the one thing she always wait. Was, let me let me give a commercial. Yeah. More people die of more cigarette smokers die of COPD than lung cancer by far. I did an internship for my social work degree in a VA hospital, a long-term care unit. Half of the people in there were there with COPD, and to see people struggling to get a breath of air is so sad. And this poor one guy, he was from Guam and he was this tiny guy and he was in a wheelchair. And this was like 1987, 88 or something um, before all the like smoking rules took place in California. And so he went off on his little balcony and he lit up, but he was on an oxygen tank. So he blew up. He didn't die, but you know, he got burned and, and it's like, but that's how addictive, that's what addiction is. Like the cigarette is actually the most addictive, more addictive than heroin. Anyway, so that's my commercial is COPD. If you're a smoker, you don't want it. You don't want it. You don't want it. I watched both, both my parents passed away from COPD. You do not and want And were it. they smokers? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Three, four times like packs a day they smoked in the home at, when I was a kid so all my childhood I was super sick with tons of different things that was probably from the smoke um and that's a that's a level of emotional trauma for a child that I I don't know a lot of people my age whose parents smoked in the home um but I could tell you like the worst memories I have of my childhood are particularly being in the backseat of the car and the windows being rolled down because my parents are smoking. So I'm sitting in the back and I'm just shivering and I'm freezing and it's just smoke coming back at me and you're, you're cold all the time. And then kids make fun of you because you smell like smoke. And you so stink. you get bullied. <laughs> yeah, you stink, you get bullied. Other kids can't come to your house because they'll come back smelling like smoke. And so you get this, it's a really, really bad thing for children whose parents smoke in the home. And so uh, luckily that's, that's going that's away a lot. It's changing, but, but there's still a lot of change that there's a room for growth. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm running this childhood where, first of all, I'm the center of everybody's attention because I'm the baby and like and, everybody. And you're how it. many years apart from your last brother? I think I'm 15 years apart from my oldest. 
Okay, so he, you're another generation. Yeah, and he loves me because I was so little that there was no time for tension. He just loved me. Um, this is with as, your oldest brother that... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so there's my oldest, then uh, my other brother who has severe cerebral palsy. Okay. And so then me. So your oldest brother had no competition. And so he could just be this wonderful older brother that then you lost. He couldn't stand anybody else, but me and my other brother. He loved us. We were his, like the thing that kept him going. He even told me once that when he was in prison, he'd had thoughts of taking his own life. And he had a little locket or something that he had that had my picture in it. And that wow. was something that like told him, I can't do this. I got to be there for him. He's always been there for me. And he's struggled with addiction issues his whole life. That's a whole other story. But, you know, he's now five years sober. He helps people oh with addiction God. through addiction. Oh, the dude, wow. he's defied every stereotype. You got to have him on here. I mean, he was a convicted felon of a violent crime and he never went back. Addiction from so many levels, from a level of like just terribly rough childhood to adulthood. And he's turned it around and he's figured out how to help people with it. He's, he's a gem. Okay, um, so hold on. So I I don't um you haven't painted the picture that is a terribly rough childhood for you. You got it. Here it comes. So, okay. Um, <laughs> I was yeah, like, what am I missing? My life sounds great. I mean, and, I know alcoholism, yeah. like you can like paint the picture for yourself, but you're you've your parents have such juxtapositioning going on, it's so unusual. So here's the thing to think about, right? I say my mom's my protector because she's keeping this childhood extreme. Like she's helping me have this amazing childhood. Meanwhile, at the age of three, my brother goes to prison for a violent crime against my father. Against your father. And they tell him, they tell me he's in Disney World for five years. So I think my oh. brother's in Disney. That's how they protect me, right? Oh, he's, he's in Disney World. I know Disney World. I've seen movies. Sounds good. But that's what's going on, right? My parents are screaming at each other every night. I mean, I can't come downstairs after nine o'clock for a reason because this, this, is, this chaos that was going on in my family, it never stops. Was the it the domestic born, violence, physical violence? Not physical violence. The verbal. It was more, yeah, it was more, and you hear a lot of this, but it was more like they're literally living a life of 20 years of building collective trauma together and their oldest son's in prison their middle son is struggling with cerebral palsy and they're trying to figure that out and at the time my mom refuses to let anybody help either because she thinks oh. they'll screw it up yeah. so she's at the same time that she's protective she's overprotective she has serious uh, ocd most likely and so when i say it looks like a great picture and that's what i remember but this this family's imploding mm -hmm. and then the thing that sets it off is my mom gets diagnosed with COPD. It starts out as a diagnosis. They didn't know what it was. She gets really sick, goes into the hospital, and then she's in the hospital and nursing homes. And so now about six, seven years old, my childhood goes from smooth sailing because one person was just really help, like figuring it out and family was trying to help them. And then boom, my childhood becomes going to the nursing home to see my mom die every day. And then it becomes, I, my father is supposed to take over and take responsibility, but he's never 
been able to do that. My mom's handled that. He, he just had to go to work. So now he has to figure out how to take care of this kid. He doesn't know how to do that. And so routinely growing up, it's this constant struggle. My dad would say things to me in his drunken states, tell me that I was, you know, the reason he drank and tell, oh tell me I was the reason. Hold on, hold on. Before yeah. like, we're going to go into this, like mm-hmm. pick this up where you left off. But before we go further, what is it? What did it do to you to be this six-year-old visiting your mom, knowing she was dying? What does that do to your identity and to your emotional like, yeah, I mean, what does that do? Well, first thing is, is you don't get told that your mom's dying because everybody wants her to make it. So you just, oh, okay. yeah, you just get told that she's sick. Okay. But you know, I think for me, I knew when my mom wasn't getting better after three months or so, and it was getting worse and she's in a nursing home and everybody else in the nursing home is like, you know, 20 or 30 years older than her she's she's 48 or so 49 and she's in a nursing home you start to think like what in the heck is going on here and you distract yourself you become a kid who who distracts themselves um and that's where I think for me I just I just started looking for how do I fulfill the need that my mom provided and so I was chasing girls like first grade I was like, I was falling in love. When I say chasing girls, I mean, I was falling in love in like first, second, third grade. From fourth grade on, when my mom had passed, I had a girlfriend like all the way through my whole life. And I treated her like that was the most important person in my entire life. And if I didn't treat her extremely well and care about her to the like best of my ability, that she would die. Like, that's what I thought. That's crazy. <laughs> but that's what that, that experience does to you is it, at least it can, it teaches you that this thing that you love so much is extremely fragile. And so you become so, so chronically aware of how easily you can lose the things that are most important to you, that you overvalue them, you put too much importance on them. And then you start to blame yourself if bad things happen. And that was because, you know, when you're a kid, you try to make sense of why, why mom's sick. Well, Mom has to take care of me all the time. She mm-hmm. spends all her time around me. So maybe I did this. Right. Maybe I'm the reason she's sick. Maybe it was too much. Maybe I'm too much. You rationalize at your age level, at the ability yeah. of your age level. And yeah, ki- kids are self-centered and they think they have this, they're omnipotent in a sense, right? Is that mm-hmm. the... Yeah. You, yeah, I, I didn't know, but I, I just saw my mom's passing away. Maybe it's my fault. And then I just did normal kid things with that lingering question. And it just steered the things I was motivated towards. I became more motivated towards relationships than things and like games. I love those things, but I really cared about friends. I really cared about people um, to an unbelievable degree because I needed people in my life. I really, that's the need that was not fulfilled. I needed belonging. I needed acceptance and I needed love. And my dad wasn't able to fulfill that for me, but other people could, and they did. Lots of people in my community, adults included, stepped up and loved me. And I just became this little person who forged a lot of connections with people and tried to care about them too. 
and it actually produced a lot of good. But I learned that to be loved was conditional on me kind of being the person that made everybody around him proud. So I also developed very quickly a belief that my self-worth and what made me valuable was that I did these things that these other people, you know, liked and cared for. And so I became really a motivated people pleaser for, for a very, very long time. So break down the identity of a people pleaser or as you were a people pleaser. We, for me. But hold on. So first of all, you were a regular kid. You, you were able to develop into the person that you were destined to be in, a, in conjunction with your family environment. And then you had this happening with your mom and you, be, you went sort of on steroids in this other direction of getting love and attention by people pleasing. So that, that was a shift in your identity. Yeah. And at the same time, I also became unbelievably emotional. So I was so, I experienced so much negative emotion so easily. And so I, as my mom progressed through sickness and ultimately passed away, I very quickly went down a path of like falling in love with media and different influences that made me that that could help me connect with somebody who felt the level of emotion I felt so like in fourth grade if you ask me you know hey Mark who is like your hero in life I would be like Eminem the rapper like a hundred percent I used to sit on my swing set every day and listen to his song lose yourself and swing back and forth and just keep thinking like I'm going to be this kid that is different and nobody likes him. And I, that wasn't true, but like this kid who's alone and lost in the world and I'm going to find a way to like make a life for myself. And so that was kind of the other side. I cared about pleasing people, but that was in constant tension of feeling like I never fit in with the people I pleased, no matter who it was. And so as a people pleasing kid, I was, really affectionate and I learned that if I was affectionate towards particularly older women um they would love me if I give a hug to my teacher they'd love me if I would just be if I'd be goofy to my teacher they'd like me plus my mom died everyone knew that so everybody treated me like a nice if I'm nice and I have no mom I'm like this amazing little kid. They're like, how's he so nice <laughs> with what he's been through? And in reality, I just learned I need love, so I'll be nice. Mm-hmm. And that's good. I think that being nice got me good things. But at the same time, it felt like I was kind of playing a game too. And that wasn't just me you showing need a, up. You need a happy medium. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good way to describe it constantly polarized in my emotions in my thoughts in my beliefs like I was all in on whatever I was feeling or thinking at any given time and that that I needed balance drastic 
everything felt so much more consequential than I think it did to my peers. Mm -hmm. So at some point you, I just want to tease out this a little bit more of, of what the death of a parent does to a young child. So at some point, did they tell you that your mom is dying? Uh, was, I don't, I don't think they ever said that because what happened was actually really abrupt. My mom started to get better. Oh. And so she came home and she oh. was living in the home for like a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden she just like got way worse, went to the hospital and within three days she passed away. So it was like, mom's home. She's going to get better. And it was unexpected. There's like, mom's getting better. And then it was instantly like, mom's in the hospital we go there I remember the night she died because I was there with all my brothers they weren't going to bring me because it was a school night and my oldest brother said no you're bringing him because I she's not going to make it and they brought me I was there and actually this is what blows my mind I was having this conversation the other day I went up to my mom at I don't know like I think I was nine and I walk up to her in this hospital bed she can't speak she's on a vent she's like not doing well they tell me that she can hear me because yeah. a lot of times you, i don't know if she can or not they tell me she can hear me i tell my mom as this little kid you can go i'll be okay i tell my mom like listen because somehow i learned she might be holding on for me and i tell her you can go i'll be okay and I still look back and I'm like, how as a little kid did I even come up with the words to say that or the feeling to say that she died that night? And so I'm like, whoa, that always hits me. Like, I don't know if she heard me or whatever, but I said, I'll be okay. I told her I love her. Oh, yes, she heard you. And this is the thing is that, that we completely underestimate the capacity of children to understand, to be involved, to be important partners in life. And, you know, you, you, I'm sure that you understood that your mom was dying, even though nobody told you that, because at nine years old, you can figure, you know, at three years old, probably not. But at nine years old, you knew what was going on even. And, and so that's the thing is that these parents that try to shelter their kids from reality, it makes it just more layers to work through or like, you know, even telling the lie about your brother or like people who don't tell their adopted kids that they're adopted is like, tell the kids the reality and then help them with it because they they're capable. I think that's a really important message because I had a lot of people in my life try to hide things from me that was going on in my family with addiction and things that were going on. And I always found a way to find the truth, mm -hmm. but that did create this motivation in my life to always second guess people's first responses. I don't always trust their first response at an emotional level, yeah. I don't. I try to take people for their first responses, but emotionally, like my brain goes to, okay, what's the real thing going on here? And that 
mistrust is not good. I, one of the things I study is self-esteem and it's about trust. Yeah. It's about trusting people. It's, and it's so, just setting up your kid to be a mistrusting person. We have to be careful with our trust, but we also have to like give treat kids as the full capacity human little human beings that they are. I love that. Yeah, I love that 100%. Um, I think it's true. And I, I want to touch on a point there. So my mom passes away that night. And I remember waking up when she passed away. My brother carried me out of the hospital over his shoulder. And Wait, so she passed away and then you went to sleep or you went to sleep before she passed away? Went to sleep before she passed away. But you um, were able to release her. Yeah, I think so. That's and what then, you did. And then like I did. And it was, I was really happy about that my whole life, that that was kind of the last thing I said. And then I woke up the next morning. My brother had taken me out. It was like one or two in the morning took me back to my house, laid me down. And then my dad came down that next morning to my room and he sat down with me on my bed. And this is my favorite memory with my dad ever. Mm. He sat down and that's why I really, if there's a message, if anybody's listening to this right now, there's a message I really want to hammer in that I think people just don't realize is that when people are in the most vulnerable place in life, there is an opportunity there for a moment that will connect you and forever bond you with that person that will not exist without that level of pain and suffering. It opens the door to the like most beautiful opportunities. And this is my best memory with my dad. My dad has passed away since. And I think about this memory whenever I think of good things with my dad. And it was literally him coming down and telling me, you know, Mark, do you understand that your mom passed away last night and she's not coming back what I didn't know until the last actually last week I just found this out I had no idea my dad lost his mom at the exact same age I did oh my god that is yeah. too serendipitous yeah and and so he I, knew exactly what you needed in a way that any regular old person could have really missed right am i right i think i think he did and at the same time i think i keep thinking about how painful it must have been for him to be reliving that moment again oh yeah losing his wife now but also seeing his son go through the exact experience he went through and i i never i didn't even know this had happened in my dad's life until literally i think last week and so this has been a new, this is the thing too. When you undergo a very serious event like this in your life story at a time where you don't know the people fully, as a kid, you don't know your parents' lives before you were born. Mm -hmm. My parents had 40 years before I was born. I learned something new about them like every year. They become a new person, like a more fully expanded person. I have to learn about my parents while they're passed away. And it's very, very weird experience to do that because you're always rewriting your story a little bit you, you your character and, as, and as you understand their history more fully then you're shifting your own relationship with yourself 
of of your relationship with them because you start to under or potentially understand why they were whatever their deficits and then you can you can sort of readjust how you think about your own experience because empathy comes in is kind of what i'm trying to say yeah i think the easiest way to forgive a parent if you've had a rough relationship with them is to assume that your parent was doing the best they could to care for you and failing miserably at it and then, and then realize what that must have felt like for them and then they just have to not be around it's been really easy to forgive my parents especially my dad for a lot of pain because he's not here he can't i can have a conversation with my dad and assume the the best of my dad and assume that he would have grown an understanding that would allow him to see my thoughts and feelings fully and, and treat me in, in, a, in a positive way. He's not here to screw that up when I assume that and then go talk to him. It, he can't screw it up. Like It's great in, in a way. I, it's, it's always been funny to me because I know so many people who have these inborn resentments for their parents and they cannot let them go. And that's like their best opportunity for healing, their best opportunity for a higher quality life within themselves. And a, I think, the best opportunity for them not to repeat the pain that their parents caused them is to right. fully forgive. Mm -hmm. And I've been lucky enough to be able to do that because my parents aren't here to screw that forgiveness up. That's great. <laughs> I really mean that. It's great. Um, as much as I wish they were here, that's very helpful. Wow. So tell me the identity, tell me who you were as this six-year-old before your mom got sick, and then as a nine and 10-year-old that then grew into your next version of yourself? Well, I'll tell you this. One of the ways that my identity got shifted pretty hard was that as, as a young kid, I was this happy-go-lucky, wildly extroverted, extremely compassionate, positive kid. That's awesome. My mom dies. Now I feel this weight and expectation to be miserable because that's how everybody treats you like you're supposed to feel when you lose your mom. You have so to grieve it, properly. Yeah. So like I'm a kid who is trying to just live their life, but there's this constant weight and expectation that I'm supposed to be in pain. Mm -hmm. So I go through this crisis where I'm we have we have identities that like our personal identity when I think of our identity is the way that we make sense of who we are but then we have a social identity that is put on us on the basis of pe what people believe to be true about us and that's the conversation we hear in the world a lot today around people from different groups is like there's a social identity which is not about how you see your, just how you see yourself. It's about how you expect the world to see you. And I'm walking around thinking everybody expects me to be miserable. If I'm miserable, they give me love, which is good. So I start learning this pattern of being a dark, brooding, in pain kid. And quite honestly, I learned that this pattern is extremely effective whenever I fail 
to complete a responsibility I'm supposed to complete. And that's bad, by the way. You use it as a crutch. <laughs> it becomes a crutch. And it's at such a young age because nobody's going to be like, you're using the fact that your mom died to, to not have to do your homework. Because they think that kids are not that with it to manipulate yeah. reality. Yeah. And you manipulate reality, but here's the truth. You manipulate it for yourself. So that's where in psychology, there's this term I really like. Martin Seligman, the founder of positive psychology, called this phenomenon learned helplessness. Yes. Where you internalize the sense that you can't accomplish a goal. It's impossible. So I'm helpless. And you just engage strategies then to have someone else take care of your problem for you, or you just persist with the problem. And, Why you, keep, and you keep proving it. Yeah. Your life centers around proving that. Is that, yes. does that make, is that how it works? Exactly. It. That's exactly it. You, you, because, well, you have to make sense of the world. And so you just learn this strategy that says, if I'm helpless, people will help me. As long as you have a good rationale for why you're helpless, people will actually help you. And so, yeah, it's been great. Like my mom passes away. It's like, well, I don't get something done that's hard. It's like, well, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't do it. And then they're like, oh, well, he's going through a lot. And so I'd say, and what do you do with that, right? Like you got to give some leeway to the kid who just lost their mom. You can't just be the... I don't think you should just treat him the same, but that was actually kind of the problem is that as I was trying to figure out my identity as a student, as a child, which I, I didn't, I don't even like think of being a child past nine. Like I, I can't think of myself as a child after that point, because when I think of being a child, that was in my the end of your story, childhood. I think it, I think it actually was um, because I, I did have someone in my life who took care of me. My grandfather, he took care of me extremely well. Where, where was, oh, I'm getting attacked by a bee. Um, but uh, he took care of me extremely well in a way that my father couldn't. The biggest point I want to make is that because people don't know how to treat me as a kid, mm -hmm. I get a lot of people trying different things. And so I get really confused. Oh. about how I'm supposed to feel or how I should interpret my life. And I just became the kid with no mom. Like, that's just how I thought of myself. And what and, did that mean to you, the kid with no mom? What's the, what's the identity of a 9, 10-year-old, of 11-year-old, of a kid with no mom? I think it looks like this. I expected myself to feel a lot of pain all the time. And I expected myself to not fit in anywhere I went because I, I didn't know any other kids who didn't have a mom I didn't know a single other kid who didn't have a mom oh, in my wow. life and that blew my mind so the identity is I'm this person destined to feel alone now what's great about that is is for some reason I'm going to give my mom credit for this and this actually touches on some research I'm doing, but I haven't published it yet. So I guess I, I can't say too much about it, but I internalized this sense of worth and value from the way I was like treated. So I just had this like 
constant relationship in my mind with my mom. And I just wanted to make her proud. Mm-hmm. And it steered all my decisions. I, I mean, I, I would get in fights in school, but then after the fight, because people would make fun of me for not having a mom. That was a common occurrence. It's like, I get in, into it with a kid at, at the lunch table or whatever. And then I'm also listening to Eminem and watching South Park by fourth grade. So like I'm walking around, throwing out F-bombs, cursing, like, and nobody's giving me any problem for this. And there's laughing. I was class clown. I'm funny. I, I don't care. I'm edgy. That was a piece of my identity. I was edgy because I lost my mom. What are you going to do to me? You, you can't do anything to me. My brother went to prison. I knew this by this point. It's like, my brother's hardcore. <laughs> I'm like, I'm Eminem, right? Just, like, I, just try and s- <laughs> be sorry. Yeah, I'm like, I'm just sitting here and I'm like, all my friendships are with people who've gone through some type of life adversity at this point. And so like, I'm in this click of like, tough kids we're like memorizing rap lyrics and we're watching they're all watching south park at my house i mean their parents knew my life was like it was a roller coaster i was i was as much as i felt alone i was insulated by like all these friends that i had that were just living these crazy lives too and so i felt like i was in this kind of movie and i was i was actually quite egotistical about it because i was kind of like I'm Eminem. So I was like, I got to be the guy. And so then I'd, you know, get into it with a kid. And then they'd be like, at least I have a mom. And this was a pattern because they'd say, at least I have a mom. And then I would go feel this inborn thing. Like I was supposed to fight that kid. And I would get in fights and, and teachers would never like give me punishment for fighting those kids. Cause I'd be like, he said something about my mom. And they would be like, you said something about his mom? His mom is, you can't do that. And they get in trouble. So I just like, that was what I got. But I, I kind of became this person who's supposed to be different, supposed to be isolated. And so even when I'm not, that's my default mode. And it created in psychology, we call it a need for uniqueness. It just made me always feel like I had this really high need for uniqueness because I had to be special also to get love and attention because all my other friends they got no love and attention their parents were just addicts or their parents were just struggling they didn't die and they didn't have a great setup in school like I had that my mom had walked through and laid the path for me so I had lots of friends going through really bad stuff but they didn't have teachers who loved them and cared about them and who had their back and that's something that was mind blowing to me. Um, so I knew I had to stay special. So I had to stay in pain and I had to play the character of the, the orphaned kid who was trying to find his way um, or I would not get lost. That's what I thought. That's the identity. That was your, your coping. Wow. And, and as a little kid, you figured that all out. And then the, what happens with our childhood is we do figure out how to survive. We make the best choices we can at the time. And then later on in life, sometimes they come back to bite us because they become habits. And then some habits are hard to 
to break and they become invisible. And then we don't even realize that actually now that we're an adult, we can choose something different and things like that. So I don't know how much further you want to go with your story because we're, we're coming up on an hour. What else? Where do you want to go with this? Well, I think in pieces, piece of that is to also recognize that at the same time, I develop patterns to be different or to be going through pain. I also learned that people would be very inspired by me whenever I even did normal things because of my situation. And that because they expected helped. you to be so damaged that performing normally was above their expectations. Yeah, and the good news is for me, I performed exceptionally. So I was like, I've been gifted my whole life with an ability to super learn. If you give me something to learn, that's why I'm in a PhD program. I get so locked in on learning. So I was great at math. I was great at writing. I was great at every school subject. So I'm this kid who's like easily able to get A's through school, who comes from this crazy background. And people are like, this is amazing. Because in America, the predominant theme is redemption. That's what people love in America. They like a person who's down and out, who finds a way to overcome. And I had that story. And I'm glad I had that story. Because with that story, I also learned that there was an opportunity to live a really high quality life. And I could do good by helping people become inspired. I liked seeing people get excited about their own lives and feel hope. And so even for my friends, I would try to inspire them, give them like an opportunity. To as a young, as a young, young kid. Oh yeah. I loved it. But, uh, what is awesome. I don't know if you've ever seen that video of that kid who does like speeches, coach Cal. He's mm -hmm. like, he was on Ellen and like, he's, he's a little kid who gives like speeches. I kind of felt like that. I, I, learned I could like walk into a room and like you know if I could just say I I lost my mom and that was really hard for me but I'm gonna do good anyway it's like yeah like everybody would be excited they'd cheer that that was an opportunity to really wake people up and give them meaning and I love that I still love that that's my favorite part of my story it gives me that opportunity so yeah before we've we've finish and before it sounds like that was like that was an outlet that provided you a strength to both focus on and support you during this difficult transition and, and what other so what other strengths got you through this extroversion not a not that really a strength well loving people I love people. And that was the thing. I saw how my dad loved my mom. So I loved every woman in my life like that. I feel that towards you in a way. Like I feel this impulse and it's for women. That's how it usually is. For women, I feel this impulse to just really like honor them. And it's mm -hmm. like, it's great to have that as a default, especially as a young man, because I see for a lot of young men in particular they can go the opposite way where oh, yeah. <laughs> they don't have that feeling oh, um, yes. and I got it towards women first and that was my thing and I always had a girlfriend 
um, which was really nice. And I always like poured into my girlfriend. And that, that was a strength because I learned love. The skill of love is a skill that I've been practicing so much in the highest, what felt like the highest stake relationships. So that skill helped me. And then I learned I could do that with my friends. And so I learned to love my friends and it didn't just become about women in my life, it became about everybody. Because then I thought, okay, well, my mom was a kid once. My dad was a kid once. If they, and I asked myself, how could I be the friend that if I were a friend of my mom or dad or both as a kid, I would have helped them find a higher quality life. My life's mission is to save my mom and dad over and over and over and over and over. In other people. In other people. And right. I, I recognize that the, and this is what I love. I don't know where I learned this, but the goal isn't to look for the problems in them and make sure they don't happen. I don't look at somebody and say, oh, I just got to keep them from smoking. My goal is just to offer them a deep feeling of belonging by showing them that I care and love for them and then be there for them for whatever life choices they decide to make. My parents knew the path they needed to take. They just needed to feel the support and get the skills they needed to take it. So I just want to be there for people to do that. And I've been doing that my whole life. Mm -hmm. I helped kids not smoke. I helped kids not drink. I helped kids go to college. Everywhere I went, I just helped people take paths that would better serve them. And I don't even have to tell them what it is. They already know what would be better for them. And that's the strength, I think, that has given me purpose. That's mm. given me the strength to want to go find skills. And that, that when I sit down to learn statistics for my PhD, and I don't want to do this thing, I think if you can do these statistics better, then you can better look at data related to how people improve their lives. And then that means that you can put something out that people don't know, and that will help people. Right. That's it. The data paints a picture that that the world needs to understand and take as reality. Well, let's see. I think we should conclude part one of, of your life story. What are some, before you tell us like, you know, what you're doing professionally and how to reach you, what are a couple of, a few takeaways for, let's say, families that are struggling with addiction or, you know, losing somebody prematurely or anybody, whatever kind of takeaway you want to give. Love them. Honor them. My brother, like he, I watched him go from full addict to becoming someone who he's fully recovered and helping people at the highest, the highest level I've seen that came from a couple people in his life accepting him fully where he's at i'll be completely honest and this is a little bit it's a little bit radical but i believe in really radically accepting people if someone's an addict not not tough love no yeah. it's not tough love right you, the truth is is go out and role model the changes you want to see in the world in your life only like demonstrate that there are things that you can like go live your life as fully as possible and never blame somebody for the things you can't do because that'll keep them in addiction. And in reality, that'll keep you from getting, reaching your potential. You could easily do that. And it might even be reasonable to blame them for the things you can't do. 
but it won't serve you. Right. It will probably hurt you. Instead, love them. See that as an obstacle towards their development and focus on figuring out, well, how can I create a context for a moment where that person feels like they can just be here outside of the sphere of judgment and exist? That's it. Like, that's your job. That's really where I would start. And if you really want to help somebody get off addiction, go research everything you can about how to have good conversations with people who are in addiction and try them over and over again and do it. I, I hate when people say you can't save somebody who's an addict. I do not believe that. I really don't believe that. I think the reason we say that is because it's not like, it's not your given responsibility to save somebody. But if you make it the choice that you're going to try to take up that responsibility, that's honorable. It might be hard and maybe not the best choice for you. There's no quick fix. Yeah, there is no quick fix. But it's, it's just not true to say that you can't because people come out of addiction all the time and they do it with the help of other people. So right. if my dad were alive, I would probably have an hour a week where I would try to figure out how do I help my dad kick addiction? And it might have nothing to do with talking to my dad. It might have all to do with how I show up and take care of myself. Mm -hmm. But that's what I would say. And don't give up hope and honor the experience. Like they might not ever get through addiction. That's okay. Honor the struggle that they have while they're trying. And if they're not trying, honor the struggle that came before that. And right really soak that in like that that takes addiction takes a lot of people so if, if it happens to be happening to you recognize you're not alone and yes people can understand like and that's the beauty of it like help contribute to that collective understanding i think that's that's my life yeah that is wonderful that is so powerful I'm so glad that I'm not really that in touch with the addiction community, but it seems like, you know, like 20 years ago when I was more, you know, I was like a social worker and stuff and it was like all this tough love stuff. And I was like, you know, something is missing from this model. And especially like with Gabor Mate and stuff, this whole thing about trauma and addiction, it's just like it's, 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 it's opening up to more, much more expansive understanding of what's happening and which allows for more compassion, more, more patience and more options of ways to interface with this humongous and incredibly difficult problem. Because if addiction was easy to get over, then the world wouldn't be filled with addicts. Addiction is, is very, very complicated and tough and hard to recover from. And so I'm, I'm just, these words that you just gave are so empowering, so, so compassionate. I guess no surprise coming from you, huh? <laughs> I, I don't, I just think that <laughs> when you say that, I sit here and I think, so as humans, 
like that's how I think of things as a human why is addiction so prevalent it's like because whatever's the most motivating thing for a person to do they're likely to do it and literally the things we get addicted to are the things that our brains are hardwired to become motivated to do that's all of it it's a motivation problem and it's a learning problem and it's one that people fall into without knowing what's going to happen to them they might it's an invisible line that you go over you know it's a, it's a natural thing to want to like relax and escape and whatever but then the, then you go over this invisible line and then you're addicted and then going backwards is a whole different story you can't unlearn pleasure <laughs> it doesn't work like that it, it just doesn't and that's where most addicts i know it came from what started as a pairing of that with people who love them. They do those things with people who honor and accept them for who they are. They don't feel like they have to be anything specific around those people. And then the drug persists too. That was my parents. That's all they were looking for. So yeah, and we can do a lot on that. I think that's a huge thing. Plus, you're not super special just because you're an addict. I think that's the huge thing is like there's an ego component. There's an ego component to addiction, which I see in the rooms of AA. I've been in them many times with my brother and my father. And my brothers helped me understand that too, is that your identity as an addict or a former addict is not all of what you are either. There's more to you. And I want to say that because all of our identities, in the world of psychology, we know that we focus primarily on the things that threaten us most. And our lives become centered around that. So when you have a part of your identity that's threatened in any way, it can become your whole identity. It's not. There's so many more aspects to you, including the addict. We have like many that. identities within our being, yeah. but then they become very dominant ones. Yeah. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. Well, listen, let's, why don't you tell the audience what you do and where they can find you online? Yeah, absolutely. So I am uh, a researcher where I study the intersection of identity and how people become open or closed off to changing their mind. And so there's not a lot to follow there at this moment. We're still working on that. But the most important thing is right now I'm on a mission. It's called the American Discovery Tour. You can look it up on Facebook. You can look it up. Uh, we have a website, americandiscoverytour.com. And what our mission is, is to go out and have authentic co conversations and connections with people across all 50 United States and then just share what that experience is like in a variety of ways. So we have a podcast and we share on our social media a story every day, someone mm, we met. Wow. And so come follow along that on that journey. And the reason why I invite you to do that is because you'll get to know me more. That's what I'm doing. This is like an educational experience for me. And I'm learning about myself by learning about other people. I think that's a really powerful way to make sense of who you are. So come follow us on American Discovery Tour, or you can find me on Facebook if you look up Mark Matthews. And yeah, have a good time and make the world a little bit better. Okay, thank you so much, Mark. And this has been Julie Brown on Bold Becoming. Hey there. The value that you got from this today, take it into your heart. Add value to it 
in your own life by putting it into practice and growing it to be part of your life, your daily habits, the takeaways that you got from this. Words and thoughts only take us so far. It's implementing on those words and thoughts that will change your life. Ideas are just ideas. Taking action on ideas is where growth happens and freedom emerges from growth. Freedom from our past invisible binding. We're here to grow and release ourselves from our past constraints. With awareness, intention, and through taking action on new choices, we evolve. In this process, we exalt our pain and suffering into wisdom that empowers us. We all have the ability to transform and become that person we yearn to be. If today's episode added value to your life, please share it with others. And make sure to subscribe to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. And if you might, take a minute right now and leave a review so that others can find out about this podcast. If you'd like to contact me for one-on-one coaching or to get on the wait list for my Tough Stories workshop, send me an email and we'll be in touch. Be sure to check out our free Facebook group of Bold Becomers. The link's in the show notes. Thank you.